Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, church. Uh, welcome to NVC. Uh, it's great to be with everybody this morning. Quick reminder, uh, as we're singing and, and singing uh, the church's Christmas songs, okay? Christmas Eve is on its way, so when you see stuff going out on social, uh, or if you are around your crazy family or whatever on Christmas Eve, at 3.30 and 5, right here in the Ritz Theater, we are going to, to sing in a way that will leave an impact on you and everybody that you bring. Because uh, we do it every Sunday, but we, there's something, we just put a little extra on the fastball on Christmas Eve. We just kind of know that based on what we're doing, we're going to put some, some extra uh, oomph into our praise and just remind ourselves of how wonderful it is that Jesus Christ came uh, to this earth, died on our behalf, rose again, and now calls us to follow him uh, in the Lord Jesus. And so we, of all people, have reason to be joyful. We're, um, we've been talking about joy a lot over this Christmas break. We call it, the subtitle of the series is The Contrarian's Guide to Christmas because a lot of people uh, are missing joy these days. And it's easy to get caught up in the freneticism, the, uh, just the overall chaos of Christmas, and miss out on the joy that it comes from, and particularly uh, at this time of year, if we miss the whole Jesus part. In 2021, they haven't finished 2022 yet, but in 2021, uh, when there's a, there's a website that, that takes all of the streaming services and all the songs that are played around the world, and they'll take the Christmas genre and rank the most frequently played Christmas songs. Number three is Ariana Grande's, was in 2021, uh, what, Santa Tell Me, I think it's called. Number two is Last Christmas by Wham. And number one, of course, is the reigning queen, Mariah Carey, with All I Want for Christmas is You. All right, now you have to go all the way down. The first actually uh, Jesus-oriented Christmas song comes in at number 71. 71. And that is Mary Did You Know. And as we're going to find out today, she knew. So I can solve that one for you. But she... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but that's 71. 72 is a version of a holy night that we just sang. But it's one of those things that if the church loses its songs, or we surrender a day like this, an opportunity to proclaim the beauty and the grandeur of God, uh, we will have done a, a great disservice to the culture around us, okay? So uh, we're going to sing. We're going to keep singing. We're going to keep preaching. We're going to keep doing what we're supposed to be doing, uh, and trust that God is going to use our church in a powerful way uh, here on Christmas Eve. So with that in mind, off we go. We'll be in Luke 1. We're looking at the Magnificat today, which, as it's traditionally known, the Song of Mary. Um, I'm going to go ahead and suggest that the Christmas kind of narrative, if you take a look at it kind of from the beginning uh, of the Christmas story all the way through the birth and what takes place in Jesus, you could look at it as a musical of sorts. There's a lot of songs. Now, musicals were th something that I, it took me a while to kind of get on board with musicals. I, I didn't understand them. I, I kind of thought they were corny and weird. Uh, I couldn't understand why people would suddenly, as they were talking on stage, just break into song. And music would begin playing, but I looked around, I didn't see an orchestra or anything like that. And, and then choreography, people would break into dance numbers, and you're, you're kind of like, okay, but that's not, that's not how things go in life. You don't just all of a sudden, I'm not sitting here in the kitchen in the, in the morning on Sunday getting my coffee or whatever, and I'm talking to my daughters, and, and then all of a sudden music begins to play, and then I start dancing, or a family starts dancing. And I didn't realize that, you know, I was kind of just thinking it through and going, okay, well, and even then, it's like, 
why can't you just say it? And then I realized, no, it's got to be art. It has to be art. There's some stuff that needs to be sung. It can't just be said. Try it with me, okay? Tell me if these have the same power. Chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim cherry. A sweep is as lucky as lucky as me. How about this one? Hey, the hills are alive. With the sound of music. Doesn't have the same zip, does it? Um, I could talk to you about the music of the night. I could talk to you about uh, Argentina, not crying for me. They've had a good morning, by the way. Go Argentina. So they, uh, they won the World Cup earlier today. And um, you, you, no matter what I say, it's just not going to have the same power that a song has. There are some things that only music can say. And one of the things it says is usually, now it can be a lament, but it says, I'm happy, I'm joyful. It wasn't about a week ago, I was just minding my own business, and all of a sudden my phone vibrates on the counter, I pick it up, and it's our distinguished executive pastor, Marcus Preciado, and he, apparently the joy of the Lord was in his heart, and he sent us this, turn your eyes to this screen for this. Look at the hands. Oh, man. Yes. We were just minding our business. <laughs> and you think he's done. He's not done. Here come the hands again. Holy Spirit hands or something there. <laughs> he's driving, too. Like, you can see the trees going by. He's actually moving. No, no please, cut it off. Thank you. <laughs> Let's give him a hand. Marcus, way to go, man. Way to make yourself vulnerable. Um, so I texted him yesterday. I go, hey, man, is it okay if I put that in there? Because it occurred to me I was going to put it in there anyway, regardless of what he said. But uh, I thought it would be nice to ask him. And, and he says, yeah, sure, but I thought the idea was to get people to bring their friends to Christmas Eve. And I said, well... We'll just say, if you bring your friends, we'll keep Marcus away from them, and that, that we'll stay intact. Uh, what I love about it is the man's just happy. He's in the Christmas spirit, right? He's just kind of doing his thing, and all of a sudden, the dance moves, the music kicks in, and then the music, and so he sings like nobody's watching, or when everybody's watching, and they know they're terrible. Like karaoke. Reminds me of a guy in our neighborhood growing up. His name was Carl. He was mentally challenged. And every song he sang, if you'd come to devotionals at the little church I grew up in sometimes, he would take his Bible or his hymnal and he would push it to his chest like this and he would throw his head all the way back as if he were in direct conversation with God and nobody was around and he would sing woefully off key and extremely loud, like, like to the point you could almost only hear him unless the group collectively decided to, to burst forth. And he probably knew he didn't sound that great. It didn't matter. Every year at the street block party, he would come over, and at dinnertime, Carl, for his talent in the talent show, would sing Amazing Grace just like that. Every year. Oh, man. 
Oh, to be like that. Oh, to have a song like that. Oh, to be the one that, that bursts forth and sing and, and not care as much about what everybody else around is doing unless you're trying to say, hey, sing with me. Let's sing together. That's what makes Christmas, I think, one of the, the greatest holidays, certainly in the life of, of the church. And that's one of the reasons why, for instance, I think in some ways Christmas Eve has taken over Easter in a lot of churches in terms of its uh, magnitude and attendance and things like that. It's because people, it's the songs. Easter has some songs, but Christmas really got the songs. I mean, Oh Holy Night and, and, and um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel and Silent Night and, and, you know, all that stuff. And then you can throw in all the, you know, goofy Mitch Miller and the gang and, and Wham and Ariana Grande and whoever else. That's fine. But there's something inside most people. They know the difference between that and when somebody gets on and they sing Oh Holy Night with all they got. There's something different. The Bible's full of singing. There are roughly 185 songs in the Bible, give or take. Uh, 150 of those are the Psalms, and you've got 35 outside of that where you actually have the song itself is what I mean. But then you've got all this other singing that goes on. So like, for instance, in the Psalms, it'll talk about creation singing. In Psalm 96, 11 through 12, it says this, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Groot, singing for joy. <laughs> you know, the trees are singing for joy. The heavens declare the glory of God, the scriptures tell us. There, there's creation praising God too. They've got their own song. There are a lot of psalms that predict the coming of the Messiah so even before Jesus shows up on the scene, just the fact that he was going to show up at some point was reason to sing. Then you've got the singing of the great patriarchs of Scripture and matriarchs of Scripture. You've got Moses singing and Jeremiah singing. You've got David singing. You've got Solomon singing. On and on and on. And then you get closer to the birth of Jesus. The drama begins to turn into a musical again. And why are there so many songs in the Bible? I think it's because not all songs are joyful, but all joy typically leads to singing. There's, there's not this lack of joy in the Bible that sometimes we have. And yes, there are songs of lament, don't get me wrong. Those are there. Psalm 22 would be a great example of that, where people are sad, but even then they, they sing. Even as David writes and Jesus repeats on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's, there's a there's a, a communication between the soul and God. When you get to the birth narrative of Jesus, you get the song of Mary, the song of Elizabeth. You got song from the angels singing when he's born. So there's, there's, there's dialogue and narrative, but then you can hear the orchestra kick up. Mary's told that she's going to bear God's son miraculously. She's kind of blown away by it, decides she's going to take off, go to her cousin's house, Elizabeth. And as soon as she knocks on the door and says, hey, I'm here, or hey, Elizabeth, the baby inside of Elizabeth jumps, leaps for joy. And they share uh, pleasantries. And then Mary will go ahead and break into song herself. This morning, we're going to look at the song of Mary. We don't know if it was on key, if it was off key, but we do know, as it is with worship, 
that as the music travels from our mouths to the heavens, there's an auto-tune that takes place. (laughs) Thank God. And God hears it the way it's supposed to be heard. Now, I'm not sure that everybody's always known quite what to do with Mary. Some people make a little too big of a deal out of her. Um, She's an object of worship or somebody who can help forgive sins. She's not that from a biblical standpoint. Some people uh, make a, a very, very big deal about her gender. It's really not about that either. I think the best way to interpret Mary is to look at the, what God says about Mary and then to look at how Mary understands what's happened to her. And if you do look at it that way, what she says in short is as she sings, she is blown away by the fact that God would even consider her. She's exuberant and going, you know, bananas in worship because she's blown away that God would call her to this. You can't consider the birth of Christ without at least considering this woman who becomes for us the means through which God delivers and is delivered into the world. There's much to be learned from the story, much to inspire us if we'll open our hearts to it. So the angel comes to her uh, and tells her that she's been chosen to bear the Messiah by miraculous conception. And so she's full of all the normal questions, the kind of questions that anybody would ask at that point in time. Uh, How is this possible? That's a good one because she knew she hadn't engaged in the behavior that typically leads to babies. And the stork does not deliver in Bethlehem. So she's thinking to herself, oh, how's this going to happen? And the angel says, nothing. Nothing is impossible with God. That's one to underline, memorize, get as a tattoo. Nothing is impossible with God. And when she hears those words, her uncertainty seems to evaporate right before our very eyes. And she declares then, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. And she surrenders to God's plan. And this is important. She doesn't do it begrudgingly. She does so with great wonder. And it's that wonder that leads her to worship. Here's the song. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And with that, the orchestra winds it up. A little bit of a unique song in many ways. It's a song of a woman who became an unwed mother. She's conceived at a time when, that she didn't choose. She's called not only to go through the public shame of the unwed pregnancy in a culture that was revolted as such, but to endure the, the heartbreak that comes with what's much harder than childbirth, which is motherhood. Her biggest heartbreak will lie just up the street from where she is, in Jerusalem, at a place called Golgotha, where she's going to witness her son's public crucifixion. And yet, she sings a song of praise for her calling to give birth to and be mother to the Messiah. It's not what she planned. It's not how she planned it. But she rejoices because God has called her to this normal, noble task. It's, 
bears a resemblance a little to what Hannah does in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. She praises God for what he's about to do and for the part that she's privileged to play in his plan. Now, is she worthy of it? The question of why Mary is a good one, uh, one we don't have an answer to. Was she worthy of it? I doubt it. I mean, who could be, right? I mean, that's kind of an overwhelming uh, kind of task. It's highly unlikely that it was because of her worthiness. God typically doesn't pick people that way anyway. He'll tell, for instance, Israel, Israel, I picked you because you're totally insignificant. Um, he doesn't pick them because they're worthy. Uh, and, and he tends to, to do that very thing. And, and Mary seems to understand that, that she is unworthy of it. And that's why she sings. It's not because she sees herself as, well, it's about time, you know. She doesn't see it that way. She's blown away by the fact that God even notices her, much less calls her to this particular task, and then becomes a, a demonstration for us of what humility in the light of our calling looks like. I mean, there's a lot more to Mary than the Christmas story. She does a lot more than just bear a child. She's Jesus' mother for his time on earth, 33-ish years or so. I don't know if they had diapers, but if they did, she probably changed them. She feeds him. She tries to protect him when everybody thinks he's crazy. She marvels at his preaching. She's there when they nailed him to the cross, and it's her that Jesus looks at when he's on the cross and says, woman, behold your son. As difficult as childbirth is, uh, it pales in comparison to motherhood in terms of the commitment required, the joys and pains and highs and lows and unpredictabilities of it. I mean, it's one thing to be in labor for 20 or 30 or 40 or even 50 hours. It's another to be a mom for 50 or 60 or 70 years. Understand this, she's not just the birth mother of Jesus. She's the lifelong mother of Jesus and takes on the noble calling of motherhood. And she doesn't just accept it, she rejoices in it. And that's, I think, the thing that we need to understand. She rejoices, get this, that she's been called by God. I've heard some strange sermons on Mary over the years where they kind of laud her for being willing to sacrifice her own ambitions and her future possibilities for the sake of raising Jesus. Man, she would laugh at that. If you listen to her song, at least. Now, she could be lying in her song, in which case she's kind of a liar and we don't need to pay much attention to her anymore. But if we take her at her own word, she is blown away that God would even think of doing anything with her, much less this. And she sees it as a noble calling that gives her reason to magnify, to rejoice, to praise, to sing, because God has called me. And she sees herself down here. That's why you see all this high, low, rich, poor, all this stuff. She sees herself down here. She sees God as somebody who reached down past all the rich and powerful people down to little old Mary. That blows her away. Gets me thinking about calling. How we see it. Do, do, do we see God calling us to follow his son? Do we see that as something that brings great joy to our hearts? I can't believe that God would, would call me to this. That God would call me to follow his son. That God would call me to be a mom or a dad or a servant in the kingdom or a servant within the church or, or to do X or Y or Z. That God would call me to 
be generous. God would call me to be holy. God would call me to X or Y or Z. Or do we look at it as a, a, something that infringes upon what we would rather do with our time and our life? If so, then we should probably listen to Mary's song. Put it on repeat. Make it the number one played song at Christmas time. Say, nope, number one this year is the Magnificat. Because God is always the hero of the story. That's what she says. God's the hero here. I mean, I think she's worth emulating, don't get me wrong, but what makes her worth emulating is the fact that when she gets this holy calling, she doesn't stand back and go, well, it's about time, God. You know, or, boy, you're lucky to have me. All right, well, you know, I was going to go do this, but I'm gonna, I guess I'll do this instead. It's probably the right thing to do. So even though I'd rather do this, I'm going to go do that. There's none of that there. She, she says, after that, she glorifies God, and then will say, I am the Lord's handmaiden. It reminds me of what the psalmist says. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. That's the heart of the worshiper. That's the heart of a joyful person. Heart of an entitled, bitter person is I only get to be a doorkeeper? I deserve better than that. Oh, you know, I just feel like, you know, my talents are being wasted by God. You know, I, I, should, be, I, should, I should be able to do better than this, or I, should, I, should, I don't understand, you know, why this is happening. That kind of sniveling, entitled, whiny version. That is seen in certain people in Scripture, like the Pharisees. God, I thank you that I am not like that man over there. Meanwhile, this guy's over here pounding his chest saying, have mercy on me, God. Right? And God, Jesus says, there you go. That's the heart of a worshiper. This guy over here thinks he's righteous, but he's not. And it's the person who's been forgiven much that has the heart of the worshiper. That's the joyful person. We have this idea that the higher up we go, the more joyful we'll be. That is woefully unbiblical. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I will exalt you when you're humble. But the high mighty he brings low, Mary points out. The low he exalts. The rich go away hungry. The poor, he says, here you go. Have a big old eternal buffet on my behalf. And that is why she sings. She's blown away. She's humble. She's drawn to the fire of calling. So if we listen to Mary, it isn't her at all that's the heroine of the birth narrative. It's God for acting on the world's behalf in Jesus and for upsetting the normal social order in choosing her. Theologians call it the great reversal. Luke 1, 52, 53, where she says, He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he's sent away empty. And some people have gone too far with this kind of saying, yeah, God doesn't like rich people. He only likes poor people. And that's stupid. I guess the word I've, comes to mind. That's not what he's saying. God's no respecter of persons. He doesn't show favoritism. But what he's saying is, uh, what Mary is singing about is that the people who are here, God brings everybody into the same, uh, at the same level of grace, if you will. 
It isn't a hymn of some sort of like um, praise for being poor. I mean, if you even think about the, the theology of it, if God liked poor people better, we should all want to be broken. You should never help anybody who's poor because you'd make them displeasing to God. Every dollar you give them makes them less loved by God. You don't want to do that. I mean, it sounds stupid, right? It is. So what we need to do is kind of go, okay, what is she saying? God has this history of doing this. He takes Israel, who is insignificant, and makes them his people. He takes Jesus, and instead of having Jesus, you know, born onto a, in royalty on a throne, he makes him a carpenter's son in Nazareth, where people go, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's the great reversal. You want to be last? You'll be first. The first, you'll be last. It's always one of those great paradoxes. And Mary, instead of going, I don't like that, she gives God glory for that. Because she says, yes, you are one who reaches down. You reached right down past all of the princesses. You reached past all of the rich women of my time, all the way down to Mary, and you picked me up, and you're going to make me the mother of Messiah. Are you kidding me? My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has done great things for me, she says. Now, I, I, I'm blown away by her, her humility. Because in our time, there probably needs to be another great reversal. One that takes away God as being somehow our servant and says, no, we're the handmaidens of the Lord. That's the great reversal today. He's always the hero of the story because without him, there is no story. And it's fine and it's right to admire Mary for her attitude throughout the story, but we should never forget what Mary herself says and who she gives glory to. And that is to God, to her heavenly Father. Just as John the Baptist considered himself unworthy to untie and stoop down and untie Jesus' sandals, Mary considers herself the most blessed woman in the universe, especially given her low estate, to be the one chosen for such an honor. The miracle here isn't Mary being willing to do it. It's that God is willing to do what he's doing by sending Jesus into the world. And that's what she gets. There's something small that I do think is uh, important as we talk about things like this. Um, linguistically, uh, I bored the first service too much, so I'm going to trim it down at this one. There's some really cool nerdy things in the original text here. Uh, and in that, uh, there's a lot of uh, tense shifting that goes on in the language. So there's a lot of past, present, futures, talking about the future as though it's already happened. Um, the, especially the lines that talk about establishing justice and mercy in the future, in the end times. When she talks about that, she uses past tense verbs, not future tense, as though it's already taken place or it's already taking place. So... God's grace then becomes something that's not just down the road, it's, it's happening right now. He's already done great things for me. So sure is Mary that God will do what he's promised, that she proclaims it as an accomplished fact. Like it's already happened. The shift of tenses from the present tense to the past tense to the future tense, and then talking about what's going on now as though it's already happened, 
is a part of how this song would be heard. It's, it's like the word plays that people do sometimes in songs. Uh, if we hear it that way, there's some version of, us, of her trying to say what God has been doing, he's still doing, and what he said he's going to do, he's already done. You could probably make some sort of musical song out of that with word plays. And so as we talk about the story of Christmas, we need to make sure that we remind people, yes, it is something that happened, but more importantly, it's something that's happening. And that what God is saying is going to happen is a done deal because of what happens at Christmas. That's how Mary's song works, and it's a great way of explaining the Christmas story to people. I had a preaching professor who said, when you tell a Bible story, always tell it in the present tense. Don't tell it in the past tense. There's a big difference between Moses and the Israelites went to Pharaoh and, sa and he said, let my people go, and Pharaoh then told them to go, and they went, versus Moses goes to Pharaoh. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says to him, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And so then the 10 plagues commence, and when it's done, the people get up and they paint the lamb's blood over their doorposts, versus, and then they painted lamb's blood over their doorposts. See that little word shift, how it changes kind of the, the way you experience the story. It's what Mary's doing. She's bouncing around. I don't know if she meant to do it, but there's a lot of present tensing of what she's saying. She takes the stuff from the past, drags it forward, takes the stuff in the future and pulls it back. God's doing it. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has done great things for me. And God has done great things. But God says he will do great things. But never forget, he's still doing great things, and he's going to do great things in the future. It's always present tense. 20 years from now, God's grace will still be in the present tense. But what makes this such a dynamite song is the wonder that drives it. Again, go back to the psalmist. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. You hear the humility there? One day with God is better than all my other days put together. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. You ever see those guys at the golf tournaments, the volunteers that they have? The PGA tournaments, they're standing around. These guys don't get paid anything. Their job is to just sit there and hold their hands in the air when somebody's about to golf, tell people to get their kids to be quiet, sir, don't take any pictures. Why are they doing that? Well, they love their community. No. I mean, probably they do at some point, but the reason they're there is to be around the golfers. <laughs> Because I get to stand closer to the golfers than everybody else. And if Tiger's hitting and I'm working security or I'm a volunteer, I can stand back to back with Tiger. That's why I'm there. Would you rather be back to back with Tiger? Or do you want to be playing, or would it be more awesome to play the typical Friday foursome with your homies? No, you'd say, no, I'll pass on the homies because I'm with them all the time. This is the unique experience. That's the one I want. When you see the worshipers of Scripture, you see the people who, who burst forth in song, 
they have a, a compelling wonder that says, God is where everything is at. And anything I do on his behalf is better than anything, everything else I can do on my own behalf put together. It's, a, it's an exaltation of God and a humbling of the self. Some version of one thought of God's is greater than the fullness of humanity's thoughts over time. One moment of God's time is worth our eternity. One glance from him is worth a thousand spotlights on earth. One touch of his hand is greater than all the efforts of a thousand generations. One calling from God is worth more than that of every other idol of this age put together. God is where it's at. And our worship doesn't just lead us to sing, it leads us to a life characterized by worship. Uh, one of my favorite uh, preaching nerds is a guy named Fred Craddock, he's dead now, but um, he, he was a magnificent writer and, uh, and preacher and great storyteller, and he was the one that used the illustration, I've used it with you guys before to help us understand how grace works. And he, he said, you know, we think that giving our life to the Lord is like taking $1,000 and putting it on the table. And he says, and it is, it's like a large deposit. So when a person gets baptized, they're taking it and giving it all to God. And then what God does, he says, is he says, okay, now I want you to take all of that, go to the bank, and change that $1,000 in for a bunch of quarters and nickels and dimes. So you take that $1,000, you go to the bank, you change it all out. And we're asked to go through life then, putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents here and a nickel there and a dime there. So to follow his line of thinking, he says, you know, you listen to the kid who has troubles instead of saying, get lost. You go to a committee meeting, you give some time to somebody in a nursing home, you, you, you know, those kinds of things, 25 cents here, 50 cents here. That's how our lives are lived in the presence of God, little pieces of grace. You see, Mary's yes to God here is like putting $1,000 on the table. But what she does over her lifetime is a lot harder than putting $1,000 on the table. I mean, her yes is a big deal. Uh, it's a huge down payment. But she lives her life then putting out 25 cents here, 50 cents there as a mother to the Messiah. She says yes to the arduous trip to Bethlehem and then on to Egypt. She's there in the temple when Simeon blesses Jesus and says to her words that she can't understand at the time, but she will. A sword were will pierce your own soul too, he says. She's there looking for Jesus when at 12 years old he stays behind in the temple to listen to his teachers. She's there at Cana of Galilee when the wines run out, encouraging him to do a miracle. She was there when people think he's crazy. She stands up for him, offering to take him back into the security of her own home. She's there at the foot of the cross when he's hanging and says, from the cross and says, woman, behold your son. She's there through it all, when it's hard, when it's painful, even when it's dangerous, she is dealing quarters her whole life and lives a life of faith over the long haul. And that's what she really means from a biblical standpoint. It's not just, yes, okay, um, I'll go ahead and go through childbirth. It's so much deeper than that. It's a lifetime yes to God. Many of us are called to play a part in God's plan. But sadly, we are not willing to, or we miss the call. 
Many of us who are called to play a part in God's plan like to bob in and out of the plan, to have seasonal obedience. But what Mary teaches us is the heart of the worshiper, the, one, the life that brings joy is, I am the Lord's handmaiden. That means when he speaks, I listen and I do, and I do it with great joy, remembering that a day as his handmaiden is better than every other day put together. So the worship that follows wonder for her isn't just found in this song. It's found in a lifetime of faithfulness to Jesus. Worship can be heard in our songs, but it's seen and it's experienced through our lives. So, church, it's time for us to begin to sing. We need to start singing. And I don't just mean singing with our, our voices. I mean singing with our lives, having lives that say what she says. You know what? <laughs> my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has done great things for me. And I would rather, I'm his handmaiden, and I'd rather be his handmaiden than be anywhere else. And if, if it comes down to one day in God's courts or a thousand elsewhere, I'll take that day because I understand who he is and who I am. And so that's why, sisters and brothers, we can be joyful at all times because that doesn't change. That never changes. There's nothing we can do that makes us big. Now, we can think that way, but we are but, you know, little girls walking around in high heels at that point. We're, we're, we're masquerading. We're not really doing it. We're not really high and mighty. We just dress the part. We talk the part drive the part, live in big houses or whatever, we're always down here. And what makes us precious in, in the sight of God is simply the fact that he created us. It's not what we bring to the table. It's what he brings to the table. And it's what he does by reaching down into the muck of life, into our lives, and saying, you know what? You're my child. I love you. And I want to call you to me. And that is why our souls magnify the Lord, why our spirit rejoices in God our Savior. May God bless the hearing of his word. This time we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. You should have gotten the elements when you walked in. If you didn't and you would like some, just put your hand in the air. And as we do, I want to reread Mary's song, but I want you, as, you, uh, as, you're, as we're reflecting this morning, let's... Uh, Let's ask ourselves some questions about where we see ourselves in the plan of God, the calling that we've received to follow Jesus, the calling that we have received to, uh, we've got a couple down here in the front. Um, when God calls us to do ministry, when God calls us to servanthood, uh, let's be honest about our hearts and how it, how it feels to us, Okay. Let me read this, and then we'll pray. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked at the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those 
of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And God, we want to have a heart like that. We want to have a heart that recognizes our humble estate and praises you for being willing to not just mess with us, but to to call us to something meaningful with this life. So, Father, for the example of Mary, we give you thanks. And, Father, for the times that we've either not heard the call, rejected the call, or not found joy in the call to follow your Son, uh, we repent, Father, and we ask that you give us joyful hearts, hearts that recognize how you've reached us in our lowest state. Father, for being a God that cares at all about us, we give you thanks. And we say in the taking of the bread and the cup today, we would rather be in your courts one day than to spend a thousand elsewhere. We'd rather be a doorkeeper in your house, a handmaiden, Father, in your house, than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. We love you, Lord, and we remember that and say it now with bread and cup. In Christ's name we pray, amen.